Well, today being the fourth day of the retreat, and clearly the fourth day is coming to a close. Kind of in a new phase of the instructions, new phase of the practice. Even though many of us continue to work with the samadhi practice, we've also begun to work with the vipassana training, um, the practice where uh, the field of mindfulness is expanded to begin to include um, other aspects of our life here on retreat. Um, Sounds, whistling of that wind, that persistent wind, Um, different body sensations other than the breathing, different thoughts or emotions that might arise or different reactions we might have to things that we encounter. Now all of this, uh, which makes up daily life, which makes up daily life for the mind, uh, makes up daily life for the environment that we live in, uh, that all now becomes um, included in the practice. Now we're beginning to take a look at life as it is. So tonight I'd like to talk about the relationship of mindfulness to wisdom, and the relationship of mindfulness and wisdom to inner freedom. It's a big topic. So I won't cover all of it, as if I could, but <laughs> let's, let's just say I'm going to cover some territory here tonight. Uh, It's said that the Buddha was interested essentially in one thing, even though there's kind of two parts to this one thing, which was that he was interested in the nature of suffering and he was interested in the liberation from suffering. And it's certainly said, and I believe this, uh, he was extremely one-pointed in that interest, very, very deeply committed to understanding the nature of suffering Uh, and also to understand what liberation was about. What the Buddha discovered on his own path, and something that uh, is also available to us, this particular discovery, which is that to be liberated from suffering means to understand suffering. That we have to understand its nature. In other words, we have to learn how to take a look at suffering in order to be liberated from it. We have to understand it. And that that this understanding comes out of our own investigation. It's taking a look at our experience in a very direct way. And of course, that's where the mindfulness comes in. That, That form of intelligence gives us that opportunity to take a look at our experience and to learn from our experience. In other words, to to gain wisdom to develop wisdom, to learn from our experience rather than being subject to our experience. In other words, to learn to begin to take what we encounter uh, as something to to learn from, something to grow from, something to free ourselves. For most of us in this uh, world, our conditioning and our training has been to seek happiness in conditions. To look outside of ourselves, for instance, and grasp on to certain things that we hope will bring lasting happiness. 
take a look at how incredibly um, pervasive, uh, particularly this culture, and it's spreading. It's really it's a, it's an ideology. It's a worldview, which is consumerism. You can see it in Asia, so many places. Maybe the kind of the birth of a lot of these spiritual practices, and you can see how much of the American way is associated with consumerism and how it kind of it's spreading. And it's built on this misperception that if we that if we accumulate the right things, that if we own the right things, if we wear the right things, um, then we're going to be happy. And the problem with this understanding that conditions are going to give us happiness, there are, of course, many problems with that. But certainly, uh, the main problem with with it is that it's unreliable. That the nature of any condition that you encounter, the very nature of that particular experience, whatever your opinion or view of that particular experience might be, it's nature. It's undeniable. All we have to do is begin to take a look on a moment-to-moment level in just one sitting or one lunch period or one walk outside. Just take a look at our experience in a very direct way and we begin to see, particularly if we look in a very sustained way like we're doing here. This training is very intense. And what, what makes it intense is because we're trying to look at our experience. We're trying to meet our life here in a very sustained way with mindfulness really taking a look, very careful look at our experience, much more carefully than what we're used to. Mostly we're used to kind of spacing out and floating along on habit. And here what we're doing is really trying to work with that and uh, become more awake in the present moment. And, and what the present moment reveals over and over again is that the nature of any sight that you might uh, experience, any taste, uh, where's lunch? Lunch. It's uh, happened a long time ago. It's gone. It's gone. Anything that you taste, you touch, you see, you smell, you feel, even anything that you think. All of these experiences, as varied and as interesting as they are, they all share the same nature, which is that they change. They change. They have that underlying uh, truth to all of, all of these above experiences. Now sometimes, um, I know Theravadan Buddhism sometimes particularly gets criticized because we do talk a lot about impermanence. And uh, there's an extreme form of understanding of impermanence, which I think is incorrect, incorrect understanding of the Buddhist teaching anyway, which is that um, it then devalues Conditions. In other words, we know that it's impermanent, and so it kind of doesn't matter. You know, there's kind of an indifference to impermanence, to impermanent conditions. And to me, that's a misunderstanding of this particular truth. In other words, we need to learn to take care of the conditions. In other words, we're living in a world. If we just see the world as impermanent, and that leads us to feeling indifferent about things, well, that's not wisdom. That's indifference. That's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. That's not compassion. That's indifference to things. So we can, we can put, place a value on these conditioned things, and I think we should. 
but we also don't want to overvalue them in a sense, see that they are, that conditioned things are, are reliable. In other words, to rely solely on conditioned things to produce happiness um, is problematic. For one, it depends on conditions coming together. In other words, for instance, if you have an idea that you can only be happy, I mean, this might not be a conscious idea, but it might be unconscious, that you can only be happy if you're in a, a healthy, committed relationship. Let's just say that's a very common one. I run into that in Cambridge a lot. <laughs> Quite a few single people out there and looking around. Um, and of course, I'd be the last one to put down sort of the happiness of being in a healthy, committed relationship. It's a wonderful form of happiness. But at 54 years old, I've seen a lot of relationships in my life in this world come and go. Uh, they're extremely unpredictable, many of them. Uh, it's very uncertain that you're actually going to find that perfect person, whatever that might be, and that that perfect person isn't going to change. Um, <laughs> and become imperfect. Uh, and that's, of course, what we all hope for. Uh, but that's not usually what we get. Uh, people change. And they change in lots of different ways. And in fact, relationships, I see this more and more, people very rarely ever do what you want them to do. You know? I mean, it, it, it amazes me. You know, that sometimes that... I mean, I really think I know what's best. <laughs> and uh, very few listen. <laughs> the body, for instance, is another good example of a conditioned phenomenon. It's good to take care of your body, my view or opinion. It's a good vehicle. It's a it's a source, can be a source of a lot of pleasure. Certainly can be a source of a lot of unpleasantness too, as you probably have discovered in the last four days. Um, but uh, again, we can deeply appreciate the body. Obviously, it gives us this life. You know, there's so much potential in life. Uh, it allows us to to go on this spiritual journey you know, to to find liberation. Uh, at the same time, it's extremely limited extremely conditioned, very unpredictable, very uncertain. Um, you know, we all have our life plans, and most of us are planning on living into the 90s and going out quietly in a peaceful way in our sleep uh, <laughs> without a lot of pain or at least heavily medicated. And it just might not end up that way. It just may not end up that way. But that doesn't mean you don't take care of the body. Just like you try to take care of the relationships that you're in. It's very important to do that. It's healthy. It's wise. And for many of us, when we come to the path of meditation or we start walking a spiritual path, 
We all have, I think, have an inkling at, at minimum. Some of us have a deeper conviction along the way that we are looking for something more reliable. You know, maybe we've had those relationships and we've been disappointed. We've had that new car. We've had this and we've had that. We've had that great job that turned south. And, you know, we've had a lot of these things and, and we still see that there's this anxiety, fear, and tension in our lives and a certain amount of discontent. Um, so we, 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 we already are beginning to have that insight. I think you wouldn't be here in a sense if, you're, if our quest was for pleasure. 100% pleasure. Uh, you, you wouldn't come here. Or if you did, you would not last very long, I can tell you that. Right? Okay? So we're not here for pleasure. That's important to acknowledge that. You know, we're not in this quest for a pleasant experience. Right? Um, we've had some pleasant experiences when we're here. I know we have. At least at lunchtime. Uh, but we've had pleasant experiences. But that's not why we're here, is to have more pleasure. We're here for freedom. Right? We want something more uh, reliable, something that's more unconditional. See? That's where Vipassana goes. That's where Dharma goes. It goes in the direction of unconditional peace, unconditional happiness, which is, of course, think about it. What's more reliable? Conditional happiness that depends on conditions coming together or unconditional happiness, which doesn't depend on conditions. Take a guess. <laughs> right. It's unconditional. Much, much more reliable. Just as we look towards conditions for happiness, we also see conditions often, our training has been anyways in the past, not now, but in the past, has been to see conditions as the source of our unhappiness. Just as we're trained to see it as the source of our happiness, we're also trained to see and to hold conditions responsible for our unhappiness. The Buddha questioned that. It's a big, it's a big question, something to investigate. Are conditions responsible for our unhappiness, our suffering, our discontent? And if the nature of them is to change, uh, is happiness even possible? And of course, happiness is possible. The kind of unconditional peace that I'm talking about is, ha- is possible. But to begin to discover this happiness of unconditional peace, not only do we look at the conditions that we encounter, and this is what the Buddha discovered, one has to go deeper. One has to begin to see how one is relating to those conditions. How one is relating to the conditions that you meet makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. If we relate to the conditions that we encounter by reacting with greed, trying to cling on to those pleasant conditions, if we react with hatred or aversion to unpleasant conditions, or if we relate to conditions with a lot of confusion or delusion in the mind, we suffer. We suffer. That's what the Buddha discovered. So 
if we respond to the condition, conditions that we encounter with wisdom, clear seeing, understanding, compassion, equanimity, we're liberated. We get free. And so, of course, where we want to begin to investigate what we're opening up to here in this path, especially now with the instructions open, is to begin to be much more mindful of, of how you're reacting or relating to the, to the experiences that you encounter, to the different conditions that arise, whether they're conditions that arise in your sitting practice, whether it's body sensations or body conditions, whether it's conditions in the mind like moods, emotions, mental states. And so instead of seeing that mental state as, yeah, I'm feeling sleepy, that's dukkha, that's suffering. No, 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 it isn't. It's just energy. It's just a natural process. It's life. What suffering is is how you're relating to it. I don't like it. I shouldn't be sleepy. Four days later, I'm still sleepy. It shouldn't be that way. There's the suffering. There's the aversive reaction to it. There's the first mindfulness, on the other hand, why mindfulness ties into freedom is that mindfulness is being aware of sleepiness without that reaction. It actually enables us to, if we can remember to do this, it enables us to actually look at that sleepiness and see its process nature, that it's part of energy, it's part of life, it's not separate, it's not bad. It's just, it's sim- it really is simply just low energy. You don't have to identify with it or take it personally. And so that's wisdom, seeing things as they are. That's the literal meaning of vipassana, to see things as they are. To take a look at sleepiness is to see that it's an energy form, nothing more, nothing less. This body is an energy system. This mind is an energy system. Sleepiness is part of that energy system. That's seeing things clearly. That's wisdom. And that begins to lead to freedom when we can begin to see that. But we also need to be mindful of our, of our reaction to that particular experience. We need to begin to include our reactions to the things that we encounter. Otherwise, we get caught by our conditioned reactions and we suffer. I think an excellent, excellent example of this whole notion of working with your reactions and seeing the kind of insights and freedom that can come out of that was this time when we were on retreat. Larry and I were leading a retreat several years ago. And the retreat started on a Saturday night, just like this. And I remember, you know, retreats have a similar, (laughs) you know, after you've been around for a while, you see they have a similar... Rhythm or process, they go through a certain process. We collectively we go through it. You can imagine it was uh, Sunday, the first full day of the retreat. There was a lot of sleepiness, a lot of restlessness, a lot of people looking for the exit door. Uh, you know, general malaise in the room, uh, disappointment for some people who are new and. For the oldies, they were just trying to cultivate patience to get through the first two days because they knew the third day was going to get better. Um, things like that. And then on Monday morning, second day, we're sitting in the hall. I think it was 8.15 sitting, actually. And, of course, we're still teaching shamatha, you know, the concentration practice. Uh, 
and sitting here, sitting here, and then these trucks pull up next to, uh, right outside this window here, actually. Um, and there's this loud WFNX music, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, hard rock southern music or something from like the 70s or something, you know, and really loud. So they had their radios going. And there was more than one truck. There was a couple of them. Then we heard some guys yelling and talking. And, you know, maybe we were trying to lead, guide the meditation or something. And they were really making a lot of racket. And, and so I, of course, wondered what was going on. And so I continued through the, we continued as a group through the sitting. And um, I went to explore um, during the walking period what those conditions were. Um, because, like I said, you don't want to be indifferent to conditions. And... Um, <laughs> I must say I was having a few reactions because it was still going on for the whole sitting. And it was only the beginning. <laughs> this was only the beginning. So I found out what happened was is this construction crew showed up um, Monday morning ready to go to work. And they were scheduled to come the following week when there wasn't going to be a retreat. But they had a free week uh, in their scheduling. And if you've ever dealt with construction workers and contractors. These kinds of things do actually happen. Uh, No offense to any contractors. (laughs) And I'm going to get to that. They have a really hard job. Um, So they showed up, and they had a project to do that they were hired for, which was an overdue project, which was to to replace all of the windows (laughs) in the main building, including the meditation hall. And I mean, not just the windows, but the frame, all the framing that holds the windows. Um, and so they be... <laughs> the head of, you know, the head of person here, Bob Trammell, wasn't about to stop them from, you know, if he sent them away, they might never come back, <laughs> quite frankly. And this was a job they had to get done, so they started working. And... They just, it sounded like they were ripping the entire building apart. (laughs) They were, actually. Uh, You know, crowbars and hammers and smashing, and they did shut the radios off. Um, But all of a sudden, the meditation hall was just full of, I mean, not just a little bit noise, I mean, really loud noise. And the whole building was beginning, was shaking. And here all these people came, and you know, you pay a lot of money, I think it's a lot of money, uh, to come and sit and the least, you know, from New York City and Cambridge and all of this, and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a construction site. Quite frankly, you're in the middle of a construction That's the reality. The reality is you're in the middle of a construction site. And we're supposed to be sitting and walking. And so here's a fantastic opportunity, <laughs> let's just say, um, to begin to look at the nature of our suffering. In other words, is the sounds that we're being subject to causing us suffering or or how we are relating to those sounds or to that construction project? Is that what's causing our suffering? Think about that. It's a good question. What we discovered, I think, many people certainly discovered this over the course, and then they, they were here for two days. Uh, so this went on for a couple of full days uh, of construction. 
it was, I mean, very disruptive, as you can imagine, in, in so many ways. I remember once I went up to my room, you know, M107, everybody probably thinks that's a pretty nice room, uh, bigger than yours, I know. Um, but I remember one day, day, one morning, I walked up to my room after the sitting, and there was this guy staring through the window. He had, he had just taken my window out of my room, and he was standing on a ladder, and he waved to me. Now, there, were, there was a variety of different responses that we, different ways that we could have related to that. Uh, let's just go through a couple of them. Um, first of all, we could have, like, you know, we wouldn't have, but people who paid money and came here and expected it to be quiet uh, could have left. It certainly arose in some people's minds. You know, this is just not acceptable. It's not supposed to happen on a retreat. I came here for quiet. I can't meditate with this going on. And one could have left. And that was a choice. I don't think that would have been the wise choice. I might have a bias there, but I don't think that was a wise choice. And I talked to people later, and everybody was really happy that they stuck it out. I didn't talk to one person who said, boy, should have gone. So that would have been one reaction. Another reaction would have been, uh, in the real world, we might have got up and started expressing our anger, right? We would have confronted. Uh, first, we might have confronted the staff, maybe demanded our money back, or uh, give the staff a hard time for having set this thing up this way. Or we could have organized a protest or stopped these guys from doing it and you know, tried to negotiate something or, or all sorts of stuff. There's, there's lots of different, and of course I'm exaggerating on these reactions, but... Uh, we could have been caught by that reaction, or we could just say, okay, let's do some listening meditation. And here it is sound, which is exactly what it is. A little vibration, too, but mostly it's sound. So you could have paid attention. And what we ended up doing was opening the instructions right away. Uh, we weren't going to wait four days. Uh, we decided it was time to do Vipassana. Uh, so be mindful of hearing. And then also notice the aversion, the anger, the disappointment, the frustration, whatever, the fear maybe even. You know, but to, to, to begin to take those conditions. Now, nobody was being harmed, so you didn't have to kick into action. You know, I had to check, I had to check things out and see if there was something that could have been done, and I found out there was nothing I could do, that these windows really needed to happen at the time. So... It was a time of surrender. Nobody was being harmed. In certain situations, certain conditions you face, you've got to act right away. But you also don't want to act in a reactive way. You want to act with wisdom. You want to respond with wisdom. In this particular situation, I honestly think the right action was to sit and continue the practice and to look at your mind doing what it was doing. Because conditions obviously still could have been a lot worse. Much, much worse. And in life, oftentimes they are facing life-threatening things sometimes, very, very difficult conditions, loss, separation. None of that was happening. It was just loud noise. That's it. So using that experience to learn from, to let go of your suffering, to be more mindful. See, the, the wonderful thing, the power of mindfulness is every time you're mindful of a particular reaction that you have, say that of aversion, the, the process that you're that you undergo is that you're undergoing a deconditioning process. 
you're beginning to let go of your conditioned reaction. And the way that works is mindfulness of reactions is, is completely different than being caught by reactions because mindfulness of reactions doesn't reinforce the reaction. In other words, you might still have a reaction to an unpleasant sound, but if you're mindful of your aversion, you're not feeding that reaction. You're not strengthening it. And see, over the course of our life, what we've done is been caught by our reactions, and they've become very, very strong. And so if we want to begin to let go of our reactions, we can't just tell ourselves, don't have that reaction. Or even try to convince yourself that those are pleasant sounds. Because they're not. They're unpleasant sounds for most of us. So it's not that. But it's that if you can be mindful, if one can be mindful of the aversion, the aversion softens slowly. Slowly but surely, those reactions begin to lose their power. And as they begin to lose their power, more space enters the mind. You know, other possibilities begin to reveal themselves rather than just our conditioned reaction. Like, for instance, if we acted on our conditioned reaction to that unpleasant experience, we'd want to get away from it. We'd want to run from it because it was unpleasant. But by staying and working with that, with those reactions, we were able to discover much more inner space around it. And, real, and one good thing about it was nobody was sleeping. <laughs> you know? I mean, there was no dipping of the heads or any of that. There was just bang, bang, rip, rip, anger, anger, irritation, irritation. Um, another example that uh, happens all the time on, on retreats is uh, waiting in the lunch line, for instance. Good, good, good time to practice, actually. Very good time to practice. And how come? Because oftentimes when we're waiting in line, we're having lots of reactions, aren't we? The mind is reacting to all sorts of things. There's desire uh, to uh, get to the food. Um, there's uh, how many people, have, by hands, how many people have had at least one moment of impatience with the line? Yeah, it moves slow, huh? Sometimes. Uh, So there can be all of that, too. There's aversion, thinking that it should be different than it is, thinking that that, that the system of lines should go more smoothly or everybody should be more orderly or people should hurry more through their food so that you can get to eat. These are really human reactions that we have, and those are perfect opportunities to practice. Because if we bring mindfulness to those reactions, we don't have to suffer so much. We don't have to get caught in the story. We don't have to buy into the fact that if we get to lunch or if we get to that food one minute faster, then we're going to be a lot happier. Because we aren't going to be a lot happier. But that's what the impatience tells us, right? You can see that when you're driving. The person that's driving too slowly in front of you The impatience creeps up, and it's all based on I'm going to be a lot happier if I can get by this car or if I can get where I'm getting in the next, uh, in a minute sooner. So working with reactions is is crucial in terms of um, moving towards a, a place where we're more inwardly free, where we're not subject to the past, subject to our past conditioning. The thing about letting go of our conditioning, uh, to begin to observe this process of letting go of our conditioning 
and letting go of our reactions because our reactions do begin to change through mindfulness practice. You know, they do begin to soften. We, with mindfulness, those reactions tend to pass through much more quickly. And with practice, you'll see that, that if you can bring uh, attention to anger or to annoyance or irritation, if it, we can actually just meet it for what it is, or a judgment about something that we think is bad, if we can be mindful of that, what it, what it allows us to do is allows us the reaction to pass through much more quickly. But for many of us, when we start opening up uh, to what's going on, as Larry said, the state of things, when we begin to take a look at it, we see all our, re- you know, we begin to see the frequency of our reactions and we begin to see how much suffering they bring us. And it can be very discouraging, I think, to, to see just how reactive we are, how judgmental we are towards other people. And then if we see that we're judgmental towards other people, we'll judge ourselves for being judgmental towards other people. Very common dynamic, actually, on the, in the spiritual path. So what's needed in this process of moving towards freedom and letting go of our conditioning is patience. That's why we talk so much about being patient. Because our conditioning doesn't change that quickly. It takes a while. It takes a while. We need, that. We need patience because we've been practicing these conditioned reactions for a very, very, very long time. And what we're trying to do here is something radically, don't underestimate it, radically different than what we're used to. We're used to reacting and being caught by those reactions. Reacting, being caught by those reactions. And so those reactions are deeply ingrained. But again, if we learn to relate to our reactions differently, instead of being caught, we take them as a mindfulness object. Instead of identifying with our reactions, like, uh, I'm judgmental of that person. See, that's a misperception. I'm judgmental of that person. Closer to what's real is that there's contact with you and that person, and then aversion arises. There's a judgment that comes out of that. But the claiming of that reaction, that's not you, because the nature of that reaction, the nature of that judgment, is that it changes. In other words, if the person goes away, judgment drops away, and you start thinking about something else. Or if you're mindful of that reaction, it changes very quickly. So that's not you. It's just part of your conditioned reaction. It comes out, it's part of the legacy of our past. It's part of our training. So we don't want to identify with that. So we need to be, cultivate patience as our conditioning changes. And when we talk about humility, in many ways, that's really what we're saying, is that uh, confronting one's conditioning is an extremely humbling experience. Very, very humbling experience because one sees the power of one's conditioning. And not just at the beginning of practice. In fact, one can be practicing a long time, and sometimes you can even think you're done with something. You know, like I'm done with that issue or that problem or that reaction. And then the right conditions come together, and boom, there it goes. You know, just like a program, computer program, just the button gets pushed. And the story comes out. The reaction of the anger, the aversion of the greed pops out. And so recognizing that, one, one, I think one very wonderful thing that comes out of retreats is that it's usually a humbling experience. I mean, if you leave a retreat thinking you're real hot shit, you know, that you're just terrific, that you're the most wonderful person on the planet, um, 
I'm not sure you were looking at your experience. Uh, we're a mixed bag. You know, we have good intentions, and we can be compassionate, loving at times. We can be angry and complaining and whining and self-pitying at times. It's a whole range of things, and none of them are you. They're just experiences that are coming through you, in a sense. So we don't want to claim them. That's wisdom. And that insight that it's not you, that it's an impermanent experience that arises under certain conditions, um, that insight comes through the mindfulness training, through simply paying attention to your experience and out of paying attention in a very direct way, in a very direct way to what is happening to you, the wisdom or the insight into the nature of that experience comes about. One of the most wonderful things, one of the most wonderful fruits that comes out of all this hard work is this quality of inner freedom. It's something you've got to love it if you're going to do this path. You, know? you really do. I mean, you have to value inner freedom. Uh, otherwise, the path is just kind of too hard kind of taking a look over and over again at what's going on. Uh, but when one begins to taste in a freedom, we begin to relax, deeply relax. We begin to develop a tremendous amount of confidence in ourselves, trust in the practice. You know, one thing I've seen over the years, see it with some yogis that keep coming back on retreats. And I see it a lot with people that I work with at CIMC, is that you get to know people over the course of time and you begin to see that um, you know, people often come complaining about certain conditions in their life. And they've been practicing for a while and they realize that they, they're reacting in certain ways. Like a common example might be family visits, like visiting their parents or visiting you know, a brother that, or a sister that's given you a hard time over the, over the years. And, and then they go in the, to that situation and the same old conditioning comes up. Everybody kind of falls into it. And they see that they do that too. And it's discouraging because you know, they're on the spiritual path. They should be above that. Uh, but then they see that they're reacting that way. Or when their partner says something to them, uh, they, uh, they, they're tired of reacting the same way. And what we see over the course of time with people's practice is that, um, and oftentimes the, the yogi doesn't even notice it themselves because they just, you know, just becomes part of their life. But their reactions begin to change. That they, can, that they find that they can be in a situation that, in the past would have, been, would have provoked a certain kind of reaction, maybe anger or withdrawal. And now that they find themselves in that situation, that they're actually responding in a very different way. They're doing something creative in that situation. They're learning something from it. Uh, they're more available. 
They don't disconnect or disassociate or withdraw, but they stay there and they hang out with things or they learn to communicate better or listen better. That they'll go into that experience uh, in a different way uh, and they come out of it in a different way. And when they begin to realize that that's happening, it's tremendously inspiring in one's life to begin to see that you can face difficult conditions in your life and not suffer or face difficult conditions and not keep repeating the same mistakes or having the same reactions over and over again. It's very inspiring. Uh, It builds a lot of uh, trust uh, when you know you can start moving through life and meeting things that are uh, meeting life, which is, of course, uncertain and unpredictable. uh, And you know you've you've developed something here. We are developing something here that is as useful as you can possibly imagine. It's the, to me, it doesn't look useful, you know, from here. It doesn't look useful, but it's extremely useful. It's, it's the most useful thing I can think of because it's something that you, it, it increases our capacity to be in this world, to be with people, to be in conditions in a way in, with inner poise, inner balance, clarity of mind. You know, we talk about compassion, but compassion for many of us can be just an ideal, something that we think we should be. Whereas compassion often comes out of having been with your own suffering and having worked through a lot of your own suffering. And then that openness and that understanding and the wisdom that comes out of having done that allows you to respond with compassion to somebody else's suffering. If we're running away from our own suffering, we're not really going to be much of a resource for other people. So one of the things that we're doing here, the wisdom uh, that we're developing on this path, is, is going to enable us not just to help us be liberated more free, not just help us taste unconditioned peace, but will help us become a resource to other people, a genuine resource, something that people can rely on, uh, where we can give people things that are substantial, that can help them in their life, help them, help them see more clearly. If we're lost in our own confusion or we haven't done our work, we haven't met our own suffering, we haven't understood how, uh, what leads to liberation, if we don't understand that ourselves, I've seen this a lot in different service organizations that I've worked for. A lot of times people lack insight into the nature of suffering. And so sometimes the help is limited. It can be sometimes superficial. Whereas people who have been on a path, oftentimes anyways, have developed a certain amount of equanimity, a certain kind of uh, a creative clarity um, that... Uh, is invaluable in any situation that you're in. So finally, what I'd like to uh, close with is, is, is a sense of how we're going to hold our practice. And when we begin to see how profound and deep this practice is, we begin not to so much evaluate our practice, our development on one particular sitting. You know, think about that. You know, the things that we're talking about here. You know, sitting, then saying, that was really a bad sitting, or that was really a good sitting. 
you begin to let that go and you begin to see that it's a bigger thing. Uh, and it's, it's more profound than that. It's not just about sitting or what, you have, what kind of experience you have in the cushion, but it's about who you are. It's about refining who you are. It's about purifying the mind, getting the mind more clear, unclouded, more compassionate, more open-hearted. Um, and and those, are the, those qualities develop over time. And so if we have a bad sitting, that's good. It's fine, because something can be learned out of that. We can develop more patience, less self-judgment, more compassion. You know, maybe, the, maybe we weren't on the breath the whole time, but we need to let go of that uh, framework and see practice in a larger uh, context, because what we're learning to do here is we're learning to respond to life with skill, with skillfulness, with wisdom, with clarity, and so it's a big job. And we're getting a lot of work done here. No doubt about it. We're certainly contributing. Uh, we're certainly moving along the path uh, through all our efforts. So could we uh, sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.